0: Today on Maine Calling, the cost of living. Our special series focuses today on zoning. Many factors contribute to the current housing shortage in Maine. Federal changes in affordable housing policy in the 1980s, the recession, supply chain issues during the pandemic, the cost of building materials, the number of people moving to Maine in the past decade, the increase in second homes and short-term rentals. The list goes on. But one big factor is recently getting more attention here in Maine and nationally. That is the role of zoning. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, our series, The Cost of Living, focuses on zoning policy, how it contributed to today's housing situation and how it might be improved. What do you think of the zoning laws in your community? Maine Calling is just ahead.
1: Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org.
0: I'm Jennifer Rooks and this is Maine Calling. It is not the most tangible aspect of the housing crisis, but zoning has far-reaching effects on the makeup of our towns and who can afford to live in them. Today we're going to learn how zoning works in Maine and about zoning reform efforts. This show is part of our year-long series, The Cost of Living, Maine's Housing Shortage. Joining me for the hour, Rebecca Graham, Senior Legislative Advocate for Advocacy in Communications with the Maine Municipal Association, Harold Bredesen, Program Director for Grow Smart Maine, and Ryan Fecto, Senior Officer of Policy and Planning with Avesta Housing. We invite you to join the conversation. What does zoning look like in your community? Has your town found ways to use zoning to make housing more available or the opposite? Send an email to talk at mainepublic.org. Post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Welcome to all of you. And a thank you to our audience members, listeners who've reached out to us and wanted us to focus on zoning as an aspect in this housing series. Um, a really great example of how our listeners have um, helped us form the content for this program. So. In doing research for this, I've learned that the whole idea of zoning is a 20th century creation that started in Los Angeles, and New York City, in the early 1900s, around 1916. People were addressing issues such as in Los Angeles, not putting a noisy, polluting factory next to houses, or in New York, making sure that skyscrapers, which were sort of a newfound thing, were not blocking light. In Maine, as far as I can tell, Ryan, people began to adopt zoning regulations in the early 1970s. And that was right when the conversation about urban sprawl became sort of this conversation of policy circles. And um, you know, as I reflect on this, the experience in the larger cities and here in Maine, what I keep thinking is, boy, does this whole conversation about zoning reflect the whole principle of unintended consequences, doesn't it? That people, when they start out, creating housing policy think they're doing the right thing for their community and in some cases they are but in some cases they have no idea what it's going to mean decades later
2: yeah I think I think the, I think the challenge Jennifer is the the use the use cases of zoning so in in some cases as you mentioned uh, zoning is of course used for smart planning I think uh, Harold who's on the call with us could definitely speak to the smart growth principles that zoning often, Um, can uh, foster in a community. I think the other challenge is when it's used in a sort of nefarious way to keep certain people out of communities or certain types of housing out of communities um, in order to have a more homogenous sort of uh, housing type. And ultimately, that's preventing people from finding uh, affordable housing in communities across our state. Um, And that's a challenge that's been persistent for quite a while. We also know that zoning across the country is... Richard Rothstein writes in his book The Color of, of Law, we know that zoning was used as a tool for racism and xenophobia to keep certain people of color out of communities as well. And so there's this nefarious aspect to zoning that has existed in at the same time it's been used as a smart planning tool. And that's the challenge with finding a the proper balance and making sure that the people who are empowered to enforce zoning or to create zoning, are doing so with the right intentions.
0: And Rebecca, let's just kind of go to the basics here. How does zoning work in Maine? It is up to each municipality, correct? Jennifer,
3: that's correct. Each municipality has uh, the ability to create their own zoning, but they can't do so without a comprehensive plan. And to go back to something that that Ryan had mentioned earlier and your point around when Maine started developing their zoning, it was really around protection of resources in a number of cases. Mandatory shoreland zoning came into effect, which required communities to, to Uh, figure out which parcels actually had an impact on water bodies and limit that growth uh, which brought in a number of issues because of the way that those lots were historically laid out which were in long lots away from the shoreland so there are multiple parcels that were that were impacted but mostly um individuals that were going to be making those planning decisions needed to know where those resources were needed to know how those measurements and setbacks uh Laid out. So, what we have are a number of communities that have comprehensive plans that really focused on that mandatory requirement for shoreland zoning and clean water, which was also built um, in the 1970s, spurred on by Maine action as well. Uh, the communities in Maine that are impacted by zoning and have a little bit more of a regulatory focus also have the Oldest infrastructure across the state, and they're the most developed communities. So they also have some unique challenges. And that's not to say that they didn't use um, some zoning to advance transit link. Like if you look at the Franklin Arterial through Portland, that dissected um, a, a very vibrant Italian community and forced folks to move into the, the Stroudwater district, which um, people have mixed feelings about. Some people feel as though that was that was great, but nonetheless, that was a targeted way in which zoning had been used. Additionally, uh, the impetus for that came out of some court actions that happened that required communities, if they had zoning, to be inclusive, uh, specifically to deal with the redlining aspects. So there were some uh, really positive ways that Maine uh, adopted it later, <laughs> But uh, also to, to address, it was mostly spurred on by, by those as well. We were not communities that were adopting zoning in the, in the early
0: 1900s. So, Harold, I want to keep going on this whole sort of the basics idea here. Um, what are some basic uh, categories of zoning? What, if you're going to look at um, a community, what are some things that are the categories that you might see in a main community and, and what does that really mean? What, they, what does each mean?
4: Well, so zoning, uh, you will often have, for example, a residential district. You might have a downtown or a village uh, district. You might have an industrial or a business district. So it's really determined um, by the uses that that the community has decided for that district. So that's kind of what zoning does. It, It divides the municipality up into different types of uses um and in a sense the purposes and and ideally um um you know as as rebecca said this should be then based on kind of the broader vision that's captured in the in the comprehensive plan so it's it's a it's a way to in a sense implement or reflect the vision of the community or the municipality as it is uh outlined in the comprehensive plan
0: and harold how can zoning help as as ryan mentioned help promote smart growth principles if done well
4: so um, what zoning does in a sense it it gives them you know different regulations for the different uh, areas for example in the in the residential village or or let's say agricultural zone for example so zoning is really a tool you know, to direct growth where growth makes sense That is up to the to the municipality and the community to to decide where they want to have, for example, housing, where they want to have preservation of natural resources, etc. So uh, I think zoning is for me, at least I see it as a a tool in the toolbox in a sense of creating the kind of communities we want to live in.
0: Ryan, let's go back to the reason we're having this program today. It's part of our year-long series looking at Maine's affordable housing crisis, really not just affordable housing crisis, affordable housing, um, mid-level housing. Um, and and I'm wondering if you can talk about how zoning contributes to this. How does how does the fact that we don't have enough homes today in Maine, um, we're short by tens of thousands. Uh, how, how did zoning contribute to this problem?
2: Well, in some cases, it's artificially suppressed supply by limiting the kinds of housing that can be built. So, prior to legislation that passed uh, last year, two years ago now, um, or last year, the LD two thousand three, which has become pretty well known relate, related to zoning reform law, um, most communities had areas of the of the town where uh, only single family homes could be built, and uh, by 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 limiting in the the zoning ordinance, the type of housing that could be built, you get single family homes built and you don't have a mix of some duplexes or some triplexes or some quadplexes. And when we have a huge need for supply, which is really what's driving the cost of housing in our state, uh, having these sort of restrictions where only a certain number of units can be built on any given parcel, leads to the crisis that I think we are in. It's not the only reason we're we're in the place we're at we're at right now with housing, but it it is a factor um, in the conversation. and that's why, you know, finding ways to be more creative about how we approach zoning, uh, the types of housing that we allow, and really embracing the fact that it's okay to have a single family home next to a duplex. And um, you know, it really creates a more vibrant community when we have different housing types. And different kinds of people that can live in our communities Uh, and and that's sort of the thrust behind the legislation that passed a few years uh, a few years ago Um, and as we see communities start to adopt these policies we'll start to see some housing types that are different than what was previously restricted in in the zoning ordinance Uh, multi-family housing obviously is another significant target of zoning and um there's a number of uh of restrictions around what kind of uh, housing can be built when you get in excess of four units or or more. And that's another challenge that exists with zoning ordinances.
0: Yeah, and I've read that this is not just a main um, issue, that something like 75% of towns and cities, uh, their zoning is for single-family homes on certain size plots of land, and that that has contributed to the supply and demand issue nationwide. And Ryan, I see you nodding.
2: Yeah and 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 I think I think the I think the other thing to keep in mind is to to Harold's point about smart growth you know util, utilizing the land in the densest part of our communities is something we should all be striving for in order to preserve the things we love about Maine. Uh, I think a lot of people have chosen to live in Maine or have stayed in Maine and uh, love Maine because of its natural beauty, the places that we like to recreate, the places we like to visit on the weekends and uh, just get to enjoy what makes Maine Maine? Uh, we can't continue to have that if we uh, if we stand by policies that direct the housing supply to be built outwardly in our communities into the areas that we've tried to conserve versus the areas that are dense and that have the infrastructure, that have the things in place, the services, the transportation, the things that make um, housing work better when when it's when when it's built where housing already exists. And I think that's the thing we need to try to take advantage of. Um, and by re revisiting zoning ordinances and looking at where we have driven housing to be built instead of in those dense areas, that's, that's something I think all communities should be uh, taking a look at. And, and I hope they are, because it's really important that we start to think about how we build housing and where we build it.
0: Rebecca, ever since the LD 2003 that Ryan referred to was passed, some communities have um, really adopted some pretty big changes and then others are struggling with changes. And I wondered if you could just reflect on what this has meant for main cities and towns.
3: Yeah, Jennifer, thanks. I'd like to follow up on on some of the comments that Ryan said as well. So with regard to LD 2003, the folks that had restrictive zoning already kind of had opportunities for individuals to create in-law apartments. Uh, Forty such communities had them on the books for more than 20 years. What happened with LD 2003 is that it took principles that we are informed at the local level previously when there were planning um, technical support in place with the state planning office, those principles were passed down to communities as to how they would divide and should divide uh, their lots on interior ways. It added the ability for for folks to not have it detached or have it detached and have kind of like smaller lots and create some opportunities for them. But it's important to note that municipalities were making those decisions at that time, informed by information from their technical support from their state partners. And additionally, the the bigger piece of the impetus of why we're feeling the affordability issue going on really is focused on the immigration and the ceasing of building that happened in 2007 during the banking collapse. The, the two pieces that are required for larger scale development are the financial piece and the bank stopped lending and the larger scale development piece developers weren't able to get um, The resources that they needed to build those or soliciting those or even finding that there's a market for those so that they could make enough money to, to do the building so there was a cease in building
0: Sure. Uh, And and yeah, and I'm sorry to interrupt. But just to be clear, we have talked about that on our uh, another top uh, main calling and and will throughout the year look at all the different things that have led to our Mm -hmm. crisis. I hope that nobody who's listening today thinks that I'm saying that zoning is the only cause of the housing crisis today. Okay, Rebecca, go on.
3: Sorry. So, so part of zoning is that infrastructure planning piece. So, it a uh, plan uh, uh, for how a community is going to grow really is about how they're going to invest in that infrastructure to expand. And the, the places that have the more kind of brought out or or split out zoning places again are the places that have the oldest infrastructure in maine and the least capacity for them to grow because it's extremely expensive but they also have some federal guidelines that they have to adhere to they have stormwater runoff issues and some of the easiest cheapest ways to address that rather than building more infrastructure is to kind of create uh, more green zones and buffers. So a lot of these historic communities, uh, historically built communities like Portland, like South Portland, are struggling to keep those spaces and to kind of retain a lot of that stormwater from running into Casco Bay without, you know, through this incredibly built environment. So um, a lot of it's about planning for the financial impacts of that growth and how to do it
4: sensibly uh, with the taxpayer dollars that they have.
0: All right, Harold, you looked like you wanted to jump in there
4: well i was just i just wanted to respond to something actually ryan talked about earlier about um you know um about the benefits in a sense of directing growth uh to um to the to the areas that are identified by the by the community as as growth areas uh and i often see that you know what he kind of outlined um is you can see the communities in their comprehensive plans um often say that they w- they would like to have like vibrant downtowns they wanna uh, maintain kind of the rural, rural character um, and farmland, et cetera. Um, but then often we see kind of the zoning doesn't necessarily, in a sense, zoning doesn't really reflect the intentions or, or that kind of vision. And I think that's something a little bit of a, a challenge as well to, to kind of make sure that we can use zoning to, to get that kind of a, a smart growth approach.
0: Uh, We are talking about the role of zoning in Maine's affordable housing crisis on Maine Calling today. Our phone number 1-800-399-3566. You can post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or send a quick, please quick, brief email to talk at mainepublic.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. This is Maine Calling. Today we are talking about the role of zoning in Maine's affordable housing crisis. Uh, With me for this conversation, Harold Bredesen, Program Director for Grow Smart Maine, Ryan Fecto, Senior Officer of Policy and Planning with Avesta Housing, and Rebecca Graham, Senior Legislative Advocate with the Maine Municipal Association. Share your comments and questions. Do you understand zoning in your community? Would you like to see it change or do you think it's just fine how it is? Send an email to talk at mainepublic.org. Comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Joining us now is Kevin Bunker, who is a principal at Developers Collaborative. Thanks for calling in, Kevin. Hey, how you doing? So you're on the development side of this housing issue. Tell us about the kind of developments you're involved with.
5: Uh, Mostly multifamily. We do commercial development as well, but we are mostly multifamily apartment developers, apartments and condos, and about... A little over half of that is affordable housing, half to two-thirds, and we're statewide. I think we have about 1,000 units that we own or have a construction across the
0: state right now. So our conversation today is about zoning, and I was wondering from your perspective as a developer, how, um, how much does the zoning in a community affect your ability to create housing and especially affordable housing?
5: Well, it's huge. You know, we, we have a there's opportunities all over the state and we have to set up filters that cause us to only look at certain things and zoning is one of the first filters we look at. If we if you know, typically we do thirty to forty unit apartment buildings and if the zoning won't allow that on a reasonable parcel, we're probably not even gonna look at that community. So it's a huge it's a there's there are large swaths of the of the state that we don't even look at and part of that is because of the zoning and part of that is because the market isn't there, but zoning is definitely a, a big piece of that.
0: What do you think uh, would help? What what advice would you give to, or have you given to city and town officials about um, what they can do to create more and better housing?
5: Well, I, I assume you've already been talking about LD
0: two thousand
5: three. Yeah. On the, I, I haven't had the opportunity to listen to the whole show, but that that's a huge piece of it, and I think it's such broad-reaching legislation with so many elements to it that it's going to take several years for that to work its way through the communities and begin to impact land use policy and impact development. And, and I, I think it's, it's wise to, it, it's a lot of good things in there. I think it's wise to really see what kind of impact that's going to have, because I think it's going to be considerable, but I think it's going to take a few years. Now that's hard to hear when the language is we're in a crisis, you know, we're in the throes of a housing crisis, which is true, but at the same time you can't change uh development and land use policy overnight. In terms of what I tell communities, when I go to communities, the biggest thing that I can share that maybe hasn't already been said or, or is maybe new information is that you have to get a local consensus around growth in your community. Now that there's this tension between state mandates and regional housing policy and local control, and you've got an MMA person on here that can certainly speak to that. But it's important not to be too heavy-handed with this kind of stuff because – In my experience, if a municipality doesn't want something, they're going to make it very difficult or find a way to stop it regardless. There are all kinds of ways that municipalities can stop growth, not just through zoning. So what it's important for me as a developer to know when I'm coming into a community, that basically that the community wants me to be there. Now, it doesn't mean everyone in the community because there's always someone who doesn't want it, but there are a lot of times when communities can have enough Certain voices in the community will say, we want housing, we need housing, and they'll maybe signal that developers should come to town, but then when developers come to town, it's a very different story, and it's much, much harder or impossible to get something done there because that consensus, and that, that long, deep discussion around what do we want our community to be, those hard questions have really not been asked, and you find that time and again that there hasn't been that kind of work that's been done, and I, I recommend all communities really dig in and do that work. And it changes over time because some communities will be great for development and growth for a few years, and then it will change. Um, it, so it's it's very dynamic, but that's the number one thing is to get a consensus, a meaningful consensus around what growth means in the community and what's okay, and then that will attract development.
0: All right. And before I let you go, Kevin, I wanted to ask you how you, um, how you feel as though so Maine compares to other parts of the country that are grappling with these issues. Do you think um, – what we're experiencing is pretty typical, or do you think because of that uh, tradition of local control that we have um, sort of a unique set of circumstances?
5: I certainly don't think it's unique. I think the, the local control thing maybe makes it a little more of a challenge, but I, I'm not really qualified to say what goes on. I'm generally aware of what goes on in the rest of the country, but I don't develop in the rest of the country, so I don't know really what all the barriers and roadblocks are and I, I know that even though it's generally thought of as difficult you know, portland's difficult and other cities might be easier there's some truth to that but if you're developing in boston or san francisco or places like that and you come to portland it probably feels pretty easy so <laughs> i i think there's different challenges wherever you go and the, the basic problem with affordable housing is not just zoning. You probably talked about that as well. It's cost of materials, it's interest rates, which we can't really control either of those things, but we can control. And again, it doesn't help when you're in the throes of a crisis, but long term, we're one of the oldest states, if not the oldest state. Um, a lot of people in the trades are retiring, and we need big, big workforce development to train the next um, group of trades so that our pricing can come down so we can deliver affordable housing when the zoning is there.
0: Great. I know that both Harold and Rebecca wanted to jump in. So if you could hold on just a minute, Kevin, Harold, go ahead.
4: Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point you made there about, you know, uh, kind of the community having that discussion and kind of and deciding what they kind of want and, and, and getting to some kind of a consensus uh, there. And I think the time we are in now with, you know, the increase in short-term rentals, uh, increase in housing prices, now is maybe the time to have, a difficult discussion around around zoning, and uh, I often hear when I maybe attend a select board meeting or, or um, a community meeting that you know zoning is a dirty word, and uh, and I think maybe we need to we need to kind of address that and and start to talk about zoning, and also say that zoning isn't necessarily you know restrictions on your use. It's it can actually enable you to do more than you currently can um so 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 we need to have that discussion i think um yeah
0: i think that was my point rebecca harold brought up uh, a lot
3: of the key points that i also wanted to focus on and i think it would be better to look or view at zoning as an exercise in group rights that is highly local in nature and that is really powerful particularly in Maine, because that is our historic way in which we understand how we relate to our community. And it can be used as an extremely powerful tool to allow that community to uh, make some significant decisions around how they want to change that community. And really requires some deliberate connection with people that have not always been in that conversation. So a lot of the focus has been on people who show up to town meeting or people who volunteer within that space who are trying to do the right thing. And they need to actually be able to broaden that to renters, to folks that aren't normally engaged in government, maybe don't have the the visible connections, but really focusing on how everyone within that neighborhood interacts. And it can be an extremely powerful tool to make sure that we're protecting the things like naturally affordable housing that are often the target, often um, find yourself surrounded by the more marginalized voices that don't enter into those conversations. So it's an extremely powerful tool for for flatlining that and making and providing agency and advocacy for those neighborhoods to protect them and help them grow in a sensible way as well.
0: All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for calling in. Kevin Bunker calling with Developers Collaborative. Um, I'm going to go to an email that um, came in. Let's see here. This is from Carl. Um, Carl talks about he sold his family farm in New Gloucester and kept ten acres of land And he wanted to develop that um, into a small subdivision. And he had a lot of trouble. And he says, I'm, I'm condensing the email here. He says, the deeper you dive into the zoning, the more unnecessary expensive barriers to new housing you find buried in a zoning ordinance. I gave up creating a small subdivision and will develop one lot every five years to avoid going through the expensive planning board subdivision review process. And Ryan, as you hear that is, is that pretty typical?
2: Well, yeah, because what he's encountering is subdivision law, which is also part of state law. So there's, are some, there's some some factors that extend in that case beyond what a municipality might be requiring and more so what the state law requires around how you subdivide land, um, which frankly is a very complicated process. Um, If anyone, Takes the time to go dive into that area of state law. It is, uh, it is rather confusing. I I, I don't blame him for uh, finding himself in a in a pickle there because of how uh, challenging it is to make sense of what that law requires of you, and especially since it's been amended so many times over the years with various exceptions and so forth. So um, I know there is pending legislation related to subdivision law. I think uh, ultimately a, a subcommittee or a group, a committee was established to maybe look at that in the interim between now and the next legislative session. And I think that will be hopefully a beneficial review of something that probably needs some fresh eyes to make uh, the process perhaps a little simpler, or a li- at least a little bit more understandable.
0: We'll go to Torbert, who's calling from York. Hi, Torbert, go ahead.
6: Good morning, Jennifer and guest. I'd like to quickly mention that the first zoning in Maine, as far as I know, happened in New York, when a working class trailer park appeared on the southern end of Long Sands Beach on the edge of York Harbor with the elite live. So all of a sudden, we needed zoning in order to make sure that that didn't happen in the harbor. But what I'd like to uh, ask your guests to focus on for a minute is form-based zoning. Right now, we zone by usage, housing here, commerce there, and so on. But in form-based zoning, as long as you develop your structures – so they're consistent with the pre-existing um, community. You can mix uses. and For example, the, the City of London is made up largely of row housing in which you have commerce on the first floor and then housing up above for several stories. Um, so form-based zoning it can be the solution to how do you get housing into what is formerly a commercial area. And we're hoping to do that in York down in the york beach area around our new uh, greenway from route one down to the beach
0: torbert thanks for your call uh harold thoughts about form-based housing you have some experience in europe
4: <laughs> <laughs> no i think that's uh that's a great point and it's, uh, it's a very you know kind of cool uh, idea i think and it's um i think there is some work also at least some thinking around you know uh pre-approved design so that you can have an expedited permitting if you go for certain pre-approved designs, and in the growth area, and that's something that towns, I guess, can can explore, and I think is being explored at the state level as well. So, so I think that's um, um, yeah. Thank you.
2: Yeah, there was actually a great uh, uh, group that met in uh, last last year around the concept of maybe some pre-approved designs for accessory dwelling units, but of course that could extend to any kind of housing type and there was a presentation that I, I I liked quite a bit from a gentleman who uh, provides some consulting around this topic. Uh, he's, a, he's from Fayetteville, Arkansas, but he did some work in Texas and the community um, had this house that everyone loved in town. Like they, it was the most beloved home, it was an older home and the, the council there was willing to adopt a pre-approved design for a series of different types of housing, duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes. And all the designs were based upon this beloved home from the community. So something that was well-known in town that the community embraced, they took, they took the design concepts from that home and applied it to these new, um, these new type housing types that they previously didn't allow um, on parcels in their community. And so it allowed them to take a step forward, uh, you know, maybe something that they were hesitant about previously, they were able to take that step forward. Uh, because they were they were embracing this this pre-approved design type that provided predictability to the community so instead of having this allowance based on you know you can have a you can have a quadplex you can have a four-unit building and not know what kind of designs you might get and you really have no control over the designs because if it meets the 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 required zoning you have you kind of have to approve it right Uh, based on the law instead it took that that anxiety or that uncertainty out for the community the decision makers in this town and allowed them to approve a new housing type up to four units because they had control over the design that was going to be um, brought forward if someone leveraged the allowance and i think that's a really cool way to maybe get communities to do something they might not feel super comfortable about but might feel more comfortable if they know the design is going to be within the character of their community or It's gonna be based on the the house that everyone loves in town.
0: We are talking about the role of zoning in uh, creating more affordable housing in Maine. The phone number 1-800-399-3566. If you're quick, you can send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back, I'm Jennifer Rooks, you're listening to Maine Calling. Today's topic is zoning and what zoning has to do with fixing Maine's shortage of affordable housing. My guest today, Ryan Fecto with Avesta Housing, Rebecca Graham with Maine Municipal Association and Harold Bredesen with Grow Smart Maine. You can join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. I'm going to read an email here from Brian. Brian writes, I'm honestly conflicted about the value and validity of zoning. I contributed 15 years ago on both local and regional zoning boards, albeit in another state. One of the ugly truths about zoning is that it does control the middle class, but zoning does not clearly stand for the wealthy of corporate interests. Zoning designations can be changed or can achieve variance. These are options available to moneyed or political interest. Moneyed interest are precisely the threat that would change current use in most circumstances. So one should fairly ask, what is fair, just, and valid? So I think what Brian's talking about there, Rebecca, is the fact that towns do have zoning um, regulations, but then they create variances all the time. And so it, even talking about how a zoning affects a town, um, It it, in reality is really maybe a little, I don't know, pie in the sky. Jennifer, I think
3: what he has actually highlighted is exactly why zoning can be a powerful tool, because it's not the moneyed interests that are going to limit profit in order to build something that's affordable or build something that a community wants. It's only the local regulation that is going to allow that. So in that regard it is possible for zoning to pivot. And as we're having these really difficult conversations, specifically backed by a lot of resources at the state level for that planning implementation and identification of the units that we need, we can actually have those conversations pretty robustly. Ryan was part of the the housing report that came out that really showed the areas of need and specifically within the coastal region, if you look at the coastal region, which includes York and and Cumberland County, the vast amount of growth in housing needs to happen for individuals that make under $150,000. That was that large chunk. That is not gonna be a place that you're going to find, profit-driven folks really wanting to get into unless they can make that that return on investment unless it is spurred on supported and strategically focused uh, by that local zoning so it's going to be those local communities that are going to say we want you to limit um, what your project retains And and we're finding this across Uh, Those areas that have. So if you look at a lot of the real estate developers' websites, actually, they call out those communities that have done inclusive uh, zoning, and they also call them out if there is a limit or requirement for affordability to be built into those projects. Um, as being less development friendly. So communities are now pivoting to be kind of the owners of that and to drive that conversation from a grassroots location. So you have a number of municipalities that have set apart municipally owned land to say, we want workforce housing here. How can we access funds for this small project? And it's that small size that is really hard to fund within that local level. But that the impetus for those projects is going to be to provide that housing on a long-term. And the profit from that goes back into the, the maintenance of that and also to maybe secure more. And that is also a model that uh, I believe is widespread in, in Harold's region as well, is that locally owned, community-owned housing that is uh, then supported by those investments and doesn't have that profit motive. I think that's well, that- going to be the power of that. We'll go to
0: Frederick, well, who's calling from Bath. Hi, Frederick, go ahead.
3: Yeah, hi, Jennifer.
1: I, I wanted to dovetail on Rebecca's point that she made. My, my conundrum that I have is the, uh, is the simple economics of our system in that housing is a, um, a, a very uh, rare commodity, and it's very speculative. The homes are now being sold by people that are certainly not wage earners. They don't have that level of um, moderate income. In Bath and the Mid Coast, we have people coming from out of state that can write actually seven figure checks, probably based on capital gains from what they've sold. So how can we then address this Um, conundrum that we have that the price of housing will continue to go up unless we have a moderating influence on the ability of people to speculatively sell their house that will continue this cycle of not being able to uh, provide housing for workforce. My other point is about rental income and the number of people that own multiple units of rental units. Again, they're renting at a higher income than the workforce base of Cumberland and York and our counties so that uh, they do find people that can spend $3,000 a month on rent because they're coming from somewhere else. We need some form of uh, regulative uh, zoning, I feel, and I'm looking forward to hearing what Rebecca and others might offer on that.
0: Sure, thanks for your call. And, and this also illustrates how, um, what a challenge it is to talk about housing and, and sort of break out different disparate uh, factors because it's all interrelated. Um, Ryan, I'm actually gonna toss to you first.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think the issue at hand here is the fact that the power right now, the cards are being held by those who, who have housing. So if you are a landlord and you own rental properties you're in a powerful position right now because the market lacks so much supply, which allows um, allows folks in the in the at least in the market rate sector to be able to charge really what what the market will will demand. And right now, that unfortunately is ex- is a pretty high high rent, and we've seen rental cost across, costs across the country increasing significantly. Um, and and I think that's primarily the challenge here is, um, you know, without without some degree of some governmental interference with um, some controls, which obviously are extremely controversial and, and often difficult to implement the the next best thing I think is to make sure and and I'm not, I'm not promoting those those policies as as the solution necessarily because I also think they have some, some significant drawbacks as well. Uh, But I, I think primarily we need to make sure we're continuing to boost supply, so that we can so we can reduce um, what what what's been caused by the lack of supply, which is the increasing costs.
0: And Rebecca, our caller specifically, um, Frederick wanted to uh, hear your perspective.
3: Yes, Jennifer, this is not something that municipalities are going to be able to thwart individually, and that's something that we really need our state partners to step up to. The acuteness uh, that's outlined in the housing report of the coastal area and the loss of rental properties in the past 10 years, since 2011, and as well as the increase in vacant homes is conspicuously the same number of the amount of housing that we need to have, that we are short by. Uh, That's not a coincidence. And I think it's a challenge when communities uh, are kind of over a barrel. They can't tax things like short-term rentals in a way that is different or carve them out from the residential population or the residential structure uh, of how assessments are done. So if you have the ability to write a seven-figure check for a, a colonial in Bath, Uh, you have automatically increased the value of the colonial next door to you that is residential while you might be renting that out for a commercial interest. That is something that is a challenge for communities to be able to deal with and to tax that appropriately for the impact on that community. That's a tool that we need from the state, really.
0: We have two emails here that are related and also related to something you said earlier, Harold. So I'm going to give these to you. The first is from Mark has there been any thought or plan to address perhaps through education and discussions at the town and city levels the problem of not in my backyard sentiment it seems that people in general are against are not against higher density housing just not near them the recently save lake auburn movement comes to mind and then from paul which is related to marks i whf equals I was here first seems to be the dog whistle to keep others out. So Harold, you talked earlier about communities having conversations, but it doesn't really help if the community, all the communities have the same conversation that they want to keep everything exactly as it is today.
4: Uh, yeah, uh, well, uh, a couple of points there, I guess. Um, I usually find that when you when when community starts having this conversation, um, and you can kind of show some examples from what developments have looked like in neighboring towns or in other parts of the state, uh, land use ordinances they have used um, show examples of what duplexes or a fourplex actually looks like. Um, People don't maybe have that because when you start to talk about housing and affordable housing specifically, people might have ideas of what that looks like. But when you show them that actually, you know, this is something that could fit in your community and it has benefits for the community, it might mean that, for example, your kids would be able to move back after with College and live in the community where they grew up. It might mean that when you grow older, you're able to downscale to uh, from your from your big uh, single family house into uh, maybe a cottage court you know if you um, if you change your your zoning. So I think there are uh, ways to kind of incentivize and educate and create awareness on the different options. Um, so you know it's it's obviously a sensitive and, and, and can be a difficult conversation, but you usually find if you have transparency and, and kind of an openness to discussing these things, people are are, are willing to engage.
2: I also think, Jennifer, that the question focuses on sometimes the wrong thing. We're focused on the people who are the naysayers in our communities, but what about the people who are at the table who should be because they actually have a positive perspective on on the proposed housing? And I think what we lose in this conversation is the fact that housing is a participation sport. It requires people to come to the table and speak in favor of and support housing when it's on the when it's up, up for discussion and far too often what happens is people assume that it's going to get approved you know you see the headline in the newspaper or you see the the evening news and you hear about a project that's proposed for you know x number of housing units you know number you know more housing coming to your community and you think that it's just sort of automatically going to happen but in reality there's a lot of work that's, that's ahead of that project to get the necessary approvals to come into existence. And so we need, we need people who support housing to come to the table. They need to share their support for housing. And also, they should also look at participating in this process by joining their planning board. There are vacancies across the state on planning boards. And it's, it's a volunteer opportunity. You email your town manager, email your mayor, whomever makes those decisions, and join your planning board because there are tons of vacancies and we need people who are enthusiastic about this issue to 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 step up and and start working on these issues
0: harold
4: yeah i just wanted to to kind of uh, echo that and say you know it's uh, it's um uh, a lot of volunteers and, and people who are engaged and but i also think that you know the capacity at, at the municipal level matters, can sometimes be a challenge as well so i'm kind of happy to see also the state kind of offering programs and grants opportunities, uh, et cetera, for kind of um, uh, ordinance and planning work that, that needs to happen to enable housing to local.
0: An email here from Bruce. In Brunswick and other towns, additions to the zoning ordinances have tended to be reactive to something that happened in a town or a town nearby. Until there's a comprehensive plan created, these additions to zoning can continue for decades until a jurisdiction has an ordinance that looks like a camel when they were designing a horse. Comprehensive planning needs to include input from experts in land development, not just town residents. Maybe there should be a statewide comprehensive plan template with input from experts that can be adjusted to fit smaller and larger communities. Ryan, what do you think of Bruce's idea?
2: Well, I was going to toss it over to to Rebecca who probably can weigh in <laughs> better on on that topic.
0: Okay, Rebecca, it's yours.
3: Yeah. Um now now everything is gone because I was actually just going to give kudos to Ryan to uh, stepping up with the, my recruitment efforts for locally. Um he's <laughs> he's not wrong. However, um the the problem with all of those things is that that local resources yes we do need some regional views of how we want to grow however it is the local community that knows best what those local resources are not the people that actually come into that so there is a role for experts to guide that and but they really do need to be informed by that local community that's a really important piece about zoning and about actually creating a comprehensive plan in general is to think about the future about the people that actually have to live there Um, And they need those resources. They are largely volunteers. And uh, we need to actually do, as part of the comprehensive process, a lot more outreach into people that don't traditionally engage with those systems. And that also needs to have some local capacity for that. We need to actually talk to renters. We need to talk to people who aren't within our our state um, or our local municipal offices on a regular basis. And, And that takes some deliberate
4: New ways of looking at how we do our outreach as well.
0: All right, Harold, we're almost out of time. Go ahead.
4: I, I just really wanted to add that it's also good to kind of start thinking about zoning before you have to think about zoning. Because once <laughs> your neighboring town starts zoning, it might be too late. So it's, uh, you know, it's 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 better to kind of say manage change than be changed. So uh, I, I think that would be my. Final comments
0: on this. Isn't that just t- truth with so many things? Um, another emailer is asking us about tiny homes. I'm not going to ask my panel here, but I am going to say that that is one of the many topics on our list for this housing series that we are um, taking on this year. I want to thank all of you for being with us today. Uh, the voice you just heard, Harold Bredesen, Program Director for Grow Smart Maine. Also with us for this hour, Rebecca Graham, Senior Legislative Advocate with the Maine Municipal Association, and Ryan Fecto, Senior Officer of Policy and Planning with Avesta Housing. Today's sound engineer was Sandra Harris. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can find past shows more than 10 wor- years worth of past shows. And you can sign up for Maine Calling's weekly newsletter by going to maincalling.org. Tomorrow on the program, why Maine decided to join the Super Tuesday presidential primaries and what it means to have our new semi-open primary. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.